Today, we're going to continue in the book of Ephesians. Um, I love the book of Ephesians because it's practical, it's doctrinal, and it's also major league deep. It goes real deep. Now, put your hats on for a moment, if you will. Um, I'm going to do a little history recap, a little geography recap uh, of the city of Ephesus, Paul, the uh, time, uh, the biblical time of the people of Ephesus. And if you're, if you're not a geography history person, some of these facts may bore you, but I, I find them quite interesting. Ephesus was one of Paul's first prison of epistles. It was written while he was in pr uh, prison in Rome. Uh, he was on trial for his life. It's a doctrinal letter, not only to the church of Ephesus, but also the churches that he planted throughout Asia Minor. On Paul's third missionary journey, he stayed and worked in the city of Ephesus for over three years, and the gospel spread throughout the whole entire region. And if you, if you like to read this type of stuff, in the book of Acts chapter 18, 19, and 20, you will read about Paul's missionary journeys and specifically what he did in Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was a, a huge port city. It, was, uh, it had a lot of commercial trade. It was a political and it was a religious center. Ephesus was a major trading center, center at that time. And it, at one time, at that time, it hosted one of the then seven known wonders of the world, which was this temple to Artemis Diana. Um, the temple was probably four centuries old when Paul got there, and it was huge. It measured 418 feet by 239 feet, and it had over 100 columns, 50 feet tall. In the sacred enclosure of the temple stood this sacred image of the goddess Diana, the Greek goddess Diana, that was supposed to have fallen from heaven. Since Artemis, Diana, was a fertility god, Cultic prostitution and cultic prostitutional worship took place at this seven wonders of the world. And many, quote, priestesses were there available uh, for people to come, quote, worship, if you will. Paul founded the church in Ephesus over his nearly three-year period that he was there. And then he was arrested. He was arrested in Jerusalem around 57 AD and took, he was taken to uh, Caesarea. Now, I'm just going to give you a brief 30-second history of Caesarea. Caesarea was, was on the Mediterranean coast of Israel. It is between present-day Tel Aviv and Haifa. Uh, that area was given, to, uh, was given to King Herod by Caesar Augustus. And King Herod built a palace there in Caesarea on this port on the Mediterranean for himself and he built a big, huge temple to Caesar Augustus. And here is where Paul spent time in prison. Now, I can't imagine Paul being imprisoned in this area and seeing the sights that he saw when he was going in. Paul was an itinerant preacher of Jesus Christ, and here he is in a town that's wor the worshiping Caesar and Herod. Can you imagine what was going through Paul's mind? The city of Ephesus at that time had over 300,000 inhabitants. It was a major, major city in that part of the world. Paul's three years there was the longest of the three years of any place that he stayed in his ministry. Today, we are going to study Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. The title of the sermon today is this, United one in Christ, united, one in Christ. 
Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we dive into your scriptures today, I pray that you challenge our hearts and our minds. Let us not only hear, let us not only think, but let us also apply what we study today. Father, I pray that still small voice of your spirit speak to me and to each and every one of us. Today is your day. Be with Mason as he travels and get him home safely to his family. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're gonna glean three things today from scripture. We're gonna do a look back and we're gonna remember who we were without God. Who we were without God. Secondly, we are going to rejoice. We are going to rejoice in who we are in Christ. Who we are in Christ. And thirdly, application, we're going to be challenged to renew daily in the Spirit. Renew daily in the Spirit. Remember who we were without God, rejoice in who we are in Christ, and renew daily in the Spirit. If you have your Bibles, open up to Hebrew, um, Hebrews, I'm sorry, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, but what, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, remember, when we remember, we have to look back. So Paul is encouraging the church of Ephesus to look back to who you were before Christ. At that time, there was friction between the Jews and the Gentiles. The, Gen the Jews viewed the Gentiles, quote unquote, as unclean because they were not circumcised. And actuality, in the, whole, in the temple area, they had the Gentile court area, and the Gentiles could not cross over into the Jewish court area because the Gentiles were viewed as less than unclean. So we have this friction between the Jews and the Gentiles that lasted thousands of years prior to this time. And here Paul is trying to get the church of Ephesus to look back to say, verse 12, that they were separated from Christ. Remember that time, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the, the Davidic covenant of the Old Testament having no hope and without God in the world. Our first point today is this. Let's remember who we are, who we were without God. What was our life like before we had a salvation experience with Jesus Christ? Our status without Christ is this. We were in complete hopelessness. We were separated from God. We were excluded. We were strangers without God. We did not have any hope whatsoever. These are the attributes that describe all of us who do not know Jesus Christ as our Savior. 
don't know about you, but I do not want to be there. I remember when I was a small child, I was 10 years old, a little country church uh, in Harrison County, West Virginia, and a pastor by the name of Edsel Bragg was preaching. And he was preaching about the complete hopelessness that we have without God. And, and then he went to this hellfire and brimstone message about what hell's going to be like if you do not have Jesus Christ as your Savior. And as a 10-year-old young boy, I rushed to the altar after the service because I did not want to go to hell. I did not want to be completely hopeless and spend eternity without God. So I went to this little wooden altar and this pastor by the name of Reverend Edsel Bragg led me to Jesus. Remember who we were without God. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be there. Let's look at verse 13. But whenever you see the word but in scripture, pay close attention to what follows it because it's vitally important. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near to God by the blood of Christ. This verse is the central theme of the New Testament. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought back, brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who was made for us both one and has broken down in, the, in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So what Christ did on the cross, not only did he reconcile us to him, but he broke down the dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles. If a Jewish person believes in Jesus and a Gentile believes in Jesus, they're both one in Christ. But it's interesting what he says in verse 12, for he himself is our peace. Do you and I need peace today? I know there's times in my life that I need peace. I need to go to my Savior, Jesus Christ, who offers us that shalom, that peace. There is no peace without God. Remember the attributes of a non-believer of Jesus? Hopelessness, separated, excluded, strangers with no hope. But now in Christ, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. He is our peace. Paul describes here the greatest peace mission in history. Jesus not only reconciled the Jews and the Gentiles, but he reconciled both to himself in one body, the church. The barrier of the dividing wall had been broken. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. It's interesting. Our Savior is a man of peace. He wants us to rest in him. He wants us to come to him when life has thrown us a curveball or when there's strife or stress or anxiety or death or mourning in life. There's a great biblical picture in the book of Psalms and one of the writers, and I forget what chapter it's in, but it's talking about how God is this mother chick and the, this baby chick gets under the mother chick's wings and it says, hide me in the shadow of your wing until the storm passes by. 
When I was a small child and I fell down and skinned my knee or bumped my head or stubbed my toe, getting up into my mom's arms was a little peaceful. That's what Jesus does for us. He is our peace. Let's look at verse 16. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Remember the hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles, the haves and the have-nots? Jesus came to abolish that and make us one body in him. And again, verse 17, and he came and he preached peace to who, to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. It's interesting to see the hostility that existed in the time of Paul between Jews and Gentiles and how that dividing wall is broken down through the cross of Jesus Christ. Verse 18 says, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So the Jews don't have the corner on the market, nor the Gentiles have the corner on the market to God. As long as we have Jesus Christ as our Savior, the two are one, and we're the church of Jesus Christ, the universal church. Verse 19 is precious. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Jews and Gentiles in Christ are fellow citizens in God's household. That's amazing to think, isn't it? Jesus reconciled the Jews and the Gentiles to him, and he reconciled me to him by the blood, his blood that he shed on the cross. And Paul does an amazing thing because he ties everything together with, with, with history. And he says in verse 20, he said, and this, going back to this household, was built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief, being the chief cornerstone or the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being held together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Jesus reconciled the, the strife between the Jews and the Gentiles and allowed the Gentiles uh, to feel that they are not less than and allowed the Jews to feel that they didn't have the corner on the market to God. And through the cross of Jesus Christ, he bridged that gap for you and I, for you and I. We need to point to rejoice who we are in Christ. Who are, what are the attributes of a believer in Christ? Or a better question is, what is our identity? Always remember this. Our, our identity in Christ does not come from our abilities, what we do. Our identity in Christ comes from who we are in him, what Christ has done for us. If we are a believer in Jesus Christ, then these following statements are true about all of us. And, I, and as I read this long list, I want you in your mind and your heart to take this and say, wow, that is true of me. Wow, that is true of me. In Christ, that is true of me. We are accepted. God accepts us in Christ. We are God's children. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, How great the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. We are Christ's friends. 
We have been justified. Justification means in, in a short term, just as if I have never sinned. In Christ, we have been justified. We are united with the Lord. We are one with him in spirit. We have been bought with a price and we belong to God. We are members of Christ's body. We have been chosen by God and adopted as his children. We have been redeemed and forgiven for all of our sins. We are complete in Christ. We have direct access to the throne of grace through Jesus Christ. We are secure in Christ. We are free from any condemnation against us. We are assured that God works for our good in all circumstances. We cannot be separated from the love of God. We have been established, anointed, and sealed by God. We are hidden with Christ in God. Well, Ephesians chapter 2, uh, Ephesians 1, 3 says, we are blessed with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms. In Ephesians chapter 2, I believe it's verse 6, it says, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Actually, we're standing here in the Capitol Theater Resurrection Church on Summer Street, but we are blessed with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms. In Jesus, we are seated in him. We are citizens of heaven. We have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. We are born of God, and the evil one cannot touch us. We are significant. We are a branch of Jesus Christ, the true vine, and a channel of his life. We have been chosen and appointed to bear fruit. We are God's temple. We are ministers of reconciliation for God. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. We are God's workmanship, as Mason taught last week. We can approach God with freedom and confidence. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. I don't know about you, but that sure beats the attributes of a non-believer. Hopeless, separated, excluded, strangers with no hope and without God. I am so thankful that on that day in 1977, I met Jesus Christ as my savior. And these attributes of a believer in Jesus describe you and describe me if we believe in Christ. Let's look at verses 20 through 22 again. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
the church is being described as a temple in which Christ is the chief cornerstone and the, and the New Testament prophets are the foundation. Christ is the cornerstone. New Testament prophets are the foundation. The cornerstone binds the structures together and the foundation is what the structure is laid upon. What precious promises from God's word do we have here? It's not about what you and I can do or have done. It's about what Christ has done for us. And in him, we are one together. Verse 22 says this, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Challenge to us is this, point number three. Renew daily in the Spirit. Renew daily in the Spirit. Ephesians 1.13, we covered this a couple weeks ago. Ephesians 1.13 says this in 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. When we hear the gospel and we respond to the gospel and we ask Jesus Christ to be our savior, scripture says that we are sealed to the, uh, by the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, put your, your thinking cap on for a moment. If you're a student of history, you'll understand this. Back in the Roman days, the seal was a very important thing. Caesar Augustus, King Herod, they had this seal that they would put upon things. Hypothetically, let's say that I was in King Herod's court and he gave me a document to be uh, taken to uh, another province over uh, in, in, Jerusalem, in Israel and he said, deliver this to so-and-so and he folds it, he dips his signet ring in wax and he seals that note. My job was to deliver that to whom he would tell me to deliver it to without that seal being broken. And if the seal was broken, off with my head. That's how important the seal is. You see, the seal denotes life. It says here, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The seal denotes life. Also, the seal denotes identity. The seal denotes ownership. The seal denotes security. The seal denotes a finished transaction. This shows our salvation is complete and we are eternally secure. Worship team, you can come up. We are eternally, eternally secure in him. So when we are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, that means our life, our identity, our ownership, our security, and, and, and our salvation is all complete in Christ. Nothing can break that. Romans, the end of the book of Romans chapter eight, Paul talks about nothing can separate us from the love of God. And he goes on this, this list of things, neither height, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This morning when I looked in the mirror and I shaved, I'm a part of that creation. 
of God's creation. So that means that there's nothing that I can do to separate me from the love of God. That love is eternally secure. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So what does this renew daily in the Spirit look like from a practical standpoint? Galatians chapter one, two verses, Paul writes, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in touch with the Spirit. There's a concept called spiritual breathing. And it, and it is, um, well, let's talk about physical breathing for a moment. When we breathe, when our lungs breathe in, we breathe in predominantly oxygen, but also some impurities and some other, other particles that are, that are in the air. But when we exhale, we exhale the poisons, the carbon dioxide and the various other gases that are not good for the human body. Spiritual breathing is a lot like physical breathing. As in physical breathing, when we exhale, we're exhaling the impurities. Spiritual breathing, when we exhale, it's a confession of our sin to God. As in physical breathing, when we breathe in, we are breathing in the life-giving oxygen that God has given us. As in spiritual breathing, we are breathing in the life-giving spirit that God has given us. So spiritual breathing and physical breathing go hand in hand. God, I confess this sin that I committed before you. I'm sorry that I did this sin. I ask you to, I know you've forgiven me, but I want to lay this sin down. I want to help ask you by the power of your Holy Spirit to help me not commit that sin again. And allow me be, to be obedient to your spirit. Exhaling and inhaling. Spiritual breathing. So how we renew daily in the spirit, we have to practice spiritual breathing. God, I know that attitude the day at work I had was not good. Or I know I shouldn't have yelled at my children. Or I know I shouldn't have cussed as that car cut me off on I-77, 64, or 79. Help me not do that again, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit. So we looked at three things thus far today. We looked at remembering who we were without God. Complete hopeless situation. We looked at rejoicing in Him and who we are in Christ. And what a blessing it is to be in Christ. And then we looked at what does it mean or how do we practice renewing daily in the Spirit. It's interesting. In these 10, 11 verses, Paul talks about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All three equal, all three same, all three, all three with, with, with different ways that they minister to us. One version I heard of God the Father planned it, God the Son purchased it, and God the Holy Spirit sealed it, as we talked about today.